friends, welcome to the Hold Lawyer Project, which highlights Asian American attorneys and leaders throughout the nation and the human stories behind their success. I am your host, Jane Jong, and today I'm really happy to welcome Shin Hong Kyung. Shin Hong serves as an of counsel at Chan and Punzalin, where she advises clients in complex commercial litigation, civil litigation, and cross-border dispute resolutions. She's also a fellow podcast host, and she recently launched the Curious Ajumas Project which like this one you're listening to is all about embracing curiosity, shining a light on each other's stories and building a community of curious minds. On the podcast, Shinong actually courageously shares her story as a rape survivor who went through a harrowing investigation and trial and how her subsequent career as a litigator can sometimes re-trigger the pain she has since channeled into power. Shinong, thank you so much for being here. Wow, thank you. Oh my goodness, that was <laughs> such a moving and like, <laughs> I feel like I don't deserve that. <laughs> oh my, why don't we just start there? Tell us about your latest project. What led you to launch it? Yeah, it is a personal project. And it's been in my dreams for a very long time. I really just wanted to document other people's lives. And when the podcast idea came into my head, I was like, this would be just such a wonderful way to be able to do that. And I talk about in the podcast, I had been struggling with PTSD. Like mm -hmm. I had no idea that, that one could get triggered so badly by PTSD, which was resulting from my rape and the rape trial. Actually, the trial itself created such a trauma that it, it got triggered at one of my workplaces. And the way that I got out of it, of that depression and that feeling like I would just couldn't get back up again. Mm -hmm. The way that I got out was because I started getting curious about people and just, I was looking for answers. So I'd ask advice from like a certain mentor when I just started getting to know other people more and their stories more to find hope. And then I was like, wow. And I found myself just like growing and expanding in interest in life again. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Oh. I will definitely put the link to your Dear Survivor episode on our page. For those of us who haven't heard the episode yet, can you recap your story here and just let us know what happened? Yeah. So, you know, this was 15 years ago when I was going to law school. I, you know, did an internship in Korea for the summer. And while I was there, I had been contacted by a lot of people who were entering Minnesota for their first year and they wanted advice. I met up with them and friends with all of them now, except for the person who became the rapist. And he was an acquaintance and basically everything led to me being raped by him. And it was too violent that I could not report it. Mm. Um, and the thought of not reporting it crossed your mind at some point? Yeah, yeah. Initially, I didn't want to, actually. Okay. I was, I didn't want to deal with it at all. I just remember the day of when I was back home, like, just, it was really scary. And my friends had actually come to save me. I didn't want to deal with it, so I didn't want to report it. But my friends convinced me that it was the right thing to do because otherwise he would be going to the same law school that I was attending because that mm -hmm. was a context that we had met. And the thought of having to either face my rapist again or be in a situation where that happens again, I was like terrified. And so finally I did 
reported uh, press charges and we went through the trial. He had very high paid attorneys. He went to Seoul National and it actually had turned out that his parents knew friends of mine, their parents, mm-hmm. it was a very small world, which is how they were able to like follow me around and call my cell phone and really harass. And there were no protections at the time. And then finally, when I came back to Korea to testify, they just brought out like, so much talk about me that I had dated a white man because <laughs> mm-hmm. in Korea that's seen as a negative and the fact that I had a tattoo was like oh my god and also my father's a former ambassador so mm-hmm. it was like just trying to bring down shame onto me and my family and unfortunately they let it happen the court but even though they do have a certain rape victim shield laws they didn't enforce it the way that America does yeah so ultimately he was found guilty he was sentenced to five years and i have no idea what happened to him Mm -hmm. how at such a young age did you know that you had to do right by yourself there and speak up for yourself even if it meant going through harassment and re-trauma and a lot of shame yeah i rely on the really tight network I have around me. So my closest friends and family, they're the ones that I rely on to be strong. I really didn't want to report it. I was scared. If I had known the extent of how much they were going to be abusive, I probably would, I think I might have, I don't know. I don't know. It's a close one. And I initially thought that I was going to be able to report this without telling my parents. Mm. And we actually had not told them. And I had only told my older sister and we had reported it and everything and not told them until there there was suspected bribery. I felt if I don't get my dad's help to stop any kind of bribery going on, I'm going to suffer. I really had support around me. And I think that's really what matters the most mm-hmm. when you're there. And you mentioned that if you had known what process you would go through, you're not quite sure if you would have done the same. Yeah, I don't know. I I would like to believe that I would have chosen to report it, but it was such a traumatic experience. I don't know. You talk a lot about self-doubt in that Dear Survivor episode and, and a lot of the shame that you felt. This is a big question, but how did you get over the shame? And I ask because people could have very different experiences, whether it's rape or childhood trauma or abuse or depression or name your demon. We all have some version of whatever blank we're struggling with. Our trauma is one thing. The shame and the guilt that blankets that trauma makes it so much heavier. I I do think we are so hard on ourselves. How do you get over that? And how, how do you advise people who are going through the same thing to learn how to be kinder to themselves? Yeah, that's so hard, right? Oh my gosh, it's so hard. Yeah. Um, it's almost not even given a second thought. Like it just comes so naturally that you don't even realize that you're doing it, right? Yeah, I still have that. <laughs> and I still deal with the shame and... I, I struggle with that still. And I think it's just an ongoing process. And one of the things that I realized and during 
my first support group was that I think I was looking for a magic pill to help me just snap out of this like shame driven emotion, guilt, and all the things that we feel. I thought that I would have this magic pill that after I go to these support groups, I'm going to be healed and I'm going to not have that. But what I'm learning is that what I've now really accepted is that this is actually just a journey for the life that I will live. It's just what do we do with that? And what do we do with those emotions? And how do we make it into something beautiful as opposed to shame and guilt? And what I found is that telling it to people and starting to share it with people, you start to tell and own the narrative of your story. And as you own it, you realize and you say it out loud, you look at it and you're like, wait a second, this is my narrative, not that one, not the one that you are putting on me. I'm not a broken victim. I'm somebody who was unfortunate to have gone through something, but I still was able to finish law school, get a job and increase in salary, whatever the typical markers are for an attorney and still have friends, like all of those things. And you, so you start to look at it and narrate it the way that you really should, recognizing the human worth and the injustice and naming it. And I think that comes from saying it out loud to people and saying it aloud to a lot of people. How did you walk away from that trauma? I don't even know, to be honest. I should have taken a pause during law school. I was able to somehow separate it in my brain. Like that was Korea. Now I'm back in Minnesota for law school. And I was able to like just split that off somehow. Mm -hmm. I still graduated, you know, with honors. And how do you do that unless you really disconnect? And then never thought about it for really 15 years. I would tell a couple people here and there about the story, think, oh, maybe I should go to you know, therapy for that. I wonder, but I never really thought about it deeply. So never dealt with it either until I was forced to. <laughs> so what happened 15 years later? I was in a situation where it felt very similar to aggression and bullying at work and something, I don't know what it was, it felt familiar. And then I think also the fact that I was raped in a room. And when a coworker had tried to be aggressive or yell, trying to close the door, mm -hmm. it, it created this like, like high blood pressure reaction. Yeah. I couldn't feel my body. And I like quickly ran out. I was running away from a scene. Mm -hmm. And that reaction was just so odd to me that I panicked so much. And, and then after that, everything the coworker did was unbearable. It became this reminder. And so not knowing what was going on, slowly my blood pressure was staying really high. <laughs> the whole thing had triggered me. My body physically just reacted to that and was reacting. And basically it was forcing me into this exploration and trying to figure out what is going on. So in a way, it was a blessing in disguise. It was just waiting to happen. It could have been anybody. You know? mm -hmm. And then at what point do you realize it's all 
rooted into that past trauma you never dealt with? I think it really took me six months until I figured that out. Mm -hmm. That's how buried and that's how numb we get sometimes. Even in the law, I was talking to a friend of mine and I was like, do you ever get this like weird, I guess they call it microaggression these days. And I was like, do you like, it's so subtle, but you can't name it because what do you name it? And if you do name it, you sound petty. It might be that they refuse to call you by your proper name. Like instead of calling me Shin Hong, they'll deliberately call me like Byun or something like that. And it's so subtle. Of course, they're going to get a foreign name wrong. I get it all the time. They won't make that effort. And I asked one of my friends who also is a minority and he was like, yeah, I get it a lot. They just won't look at me when we have a meeting. They only look at the leading attorney and won't address me. And this or, is a minority attorney you're talking to. Yeah. 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 But these are all really subtle things. Like you can't say, hey, you're not looking at me. You know what I mean? If you did, you would look like the weirdo, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But imagine getting that all the time. We're so used to numbing ourselves to things and trying to excuse and diminish. We excuse that behavior constantly. And when we're excusing that behavior, we're also diminishing ourselves. And because we're saying something in that action of allowing it, we're just saying it's okay for them to do that. They're entitled to do that. And I'm not maybe as worthy of that yet and we start to believe that yes you know, yes i totally agree and those microaggressions that you talk about i think every minority every woman in a professional setting feels that but we just don't know what to call it because it's literally our day-to-day -day lives and i i bet you the sirens outside just now that probably distracted our listeners but at that mm -hmm. point right now that you made i want to repeat that because it's so so key is that mm -hmm. Asian American women and other minority women attorneys deal with that day to day to day to day. And most of the time we don't address it because then we look like the, she's not part of the team. I think that's a really important point. And mm -hmm. my hope is once we start talking about it, we'll know that, oh, this is actually happening a crap load mm -hmm. and we really need to address it. That's what I'm hoping is that people start sharing more so that we can actually deal with it because I think it's a problem. And I think that ha contributes to why many Asian American and minority women basically tap out of their career between the eight and 12 mark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While we're talking about your career here, how have you changed when we talk about these microaggressions were they always there from day one and you just became better at handling it? Or did you become better at speaking up for yourself? How have you been advocating for yourself and women who look like you and me? Yeah. Oh my gosh. In the day, and I, even now still, when I get that, I still just let it happen a lot. And I, it's always been there. And I've jumped around a lot, actually, in terms of subject and geography. I started out in New York for three years doing mm -hmm. criminal defense and private criminal defense and mm -hmm. um, civil lit. And it was a lot of fun. Like I got to work with a very, you know, well-known criminal defense attorney in New York. And he was teaching me all the rules, so to speak, but it was all like older white males and i felt a lot of the times i felt like i just i don't know it it 
you can't really quite pinpoint it. It was like some of the older attorneys treated me like, oh, that cute little Asian thing, like that. So let's back up a bit and tell us about your career path since law school. Since law school, gosh, yeah, I started out in New York. And honestly, I went to New York because I was like, I was obsessed with sex in the city. And I was like, <laughs> you know what, I want, I love that lifestyle, sex in the city. Totally attainable lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Delirious. I'm like, so, so dumb at 28. And I'm like you, I took a time in between, took four or five years. In oh, between. awesome. What did you do in between law school and college? I, in Korea, I worked uh, on a broadcast, like a satellite channel. <laughs> this is so funny. It was called Arirang, or it, <laughs> is, it still exists. I've seen it. It's, it's like the show that's played on repeat in like a Korean restaurant in the back. <laughs> It's so amateur. <laughs> like, it's so funny. It's so amateur. But at the same time, it is the only English channels. People in India and Singapore would recognize me at the time. That's awesome. Um, yeah. But yeah. And it was fun because it was, I got to, the part that I did was entertainment. I got to go to the film festivals and like interview mm. Bond. That was cool. So awesome. that was something that I did. And then while I was in that industry, I faced a lot of like, women are just mistreated all the time, everywhere in whatever industry. <laughs> oh, God, in Korea, especially they would send me to events, like my manager at the time would send me to events where famous directors or producers would be there. And when I go, it felt like they're sending me here as entertainment, not because they're trying to introduce me for and I started to question that and finally I was like oh you know what this is not for me I'm like <laughs> I they can't. give up James Bond for Minnesota <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I ended up a friend of mine suggested law school and so it's okay I'll give it a try mm. and so that's how I ended up in law school and New York and then <laughs> After that, I went to Korea. I, no, I took my California bar exam in between New York and Korea. So I was there for about a year. And then I wanted to do something more commercial. After having done criminal, I went to Kim and Chang and, uh, in Korea. And I was there for three years. I ended up really loving it there. And then I had gotten involved more into this field called called maritime law. <laughs> and in Korea, there's a lot of shipping industry, but there aren't a lot of maritime experts, even globally, actually. And the partner that headed that team was just amazing. So he taught me everything. And I thought, okay, maybe I will stay here. And I did an LLM in Tulane to learn more maritime law and was going to go back to Kim and Chang to practice and try to lead the maritime law with the other attorneys there. And, but then in Louisiana, I ended up meeting my husband who is United States military. <laughs> so he couldn't leave yeah. back with me. So I ended up um, choosing to leave Kim and Chang and I stayed in Louisiana, worked there for a little bit, but became a mom. And I raised my kids without working for about four or five years such a long, I'm sorry, it's like a long process of like my career. No, this is great. Look, 
it's I feel like people think their careers are so linear, but yours is like this all is all, but it's amazing actually that you've tried out all these different things. I want to back up a bit and maybe we could first talk about law and then I want to talk more about your family and the and the break you took. So you started out commercial litigation in Louisiana by the time you get there you're in maritime law. How do you compare those fields? For criminal, for instance, like, why do you say you just felt like you didn't belong? I remember going down to the jails and to go see a client and getting like milk thrown on my Oh my gosh. Like people like yelling at me there in their holding cells. And I was really scared. Mm -hmm. And and which is so sad because that also says a lot about our, you know, prison systems too, and just how people are held and treated there. So that was part of it. And I just felt like it was too emotional for me in a way. I ended up becoming like close friends with a lot of my clients and I still am like that way. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, the criminal clients at least are, are just caught up in a situation where I feel like the circumstances and what they didn't have exposure to dictated a lot of how they made their choices. And it just seems so unfair. That's how our world is in the U.S. a lot. It's the circumstances and what you're exposed to that really dictates your future. And some of these clients, I felt just my heart was just like, so, oh, God, you know, it. And I think a lot of that was like, I, I want commercial <laughs> a little bit just less emotional yeah yeah except it turns out that it's not even that e- <laughs> commercial because <laughs> even commercial law involves human beings and the disputes are still between human beings and the issues that come up can be sometimes uh-huh. so you really don't avoid that and but that was the initial reason why i left criminal for commercial but in commercial i specifically also at kim and chang did international arbitration and that's really fun and gosh it's so different from litigation and i love to encourage attorneys in the u.s to pursue that because it's a different way to resolve disputes especially if you have international companies dealing with each other and it's cheaper it's faster there's less bias towards if you're a korean company that's being brought into the United States, you're going to deal with some bias issues. International arbitration is just really fascinating. It's a growing field and people aren't as mean (laughs) as they are. (laughs) Yeah, it's much more gentle, womanly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then you get into maritime law. How is that? And what are some issues you face in maritime law? Oh my gosh. It's so, it's actually really cool. And I'm, this is where I'm like a total geek. (laughs) Go for it. We're all geeks around here. (laughs) First maritime law uses our own language. Like you don't call it a contract. You call it a charter party. (laughs) Oh, I did not know that. Okay. I I was like, okay, cool. But so they have a lot of their own old language and it's just maintained itself from like old English law that has slowly developed and it's very complex because you're dealing with jurisdictional conflicts. What's the governing law? Is it going to be Korean law or is it going to be California law or Singapore law? You have to sometimes fight mm. them because it's mm-hmm. not necessarily in boundaries. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Most of it is in London and under English law. Sometimes there's that question where we don't know what the governing law is. So you get into like geeky subjects like that where you have to do the research and go into the theory of law. So there's stuff like that. It's also you deal with sometimes like 
huge damage amounts. So let's say a ship is collided with another ship. And so by that you create like a hole in your ship, the hull, and you have to fix it. And then it ends up being like millions of dollars, like that kind of issue and whose fault was it? And you have to learn like how the contract works in maritime and then also how the practice works. It's pretty fascinating because it also is just the basic way how we all trade. And at every single one of these pivots in your legal career, how did you navigate that? For instance, when you talk about the the signs that you thought criminal law was not for you, Mm -hmm. how do you then know what is for you? Do you have any advice for people who are looking to pivot? When I first wanted to pivot to commercial from small firm, it was really hard. And I remember having a lot of people be like, oh, you're not going to be able to get into a large firm. So I had to really think about it. And I was like, so let me see, where can I go? And I knew I had a lot of contacts in Asia. So my best friend was in Singapore. I I tried to use all the connections and network I had to Mm -hmm. find ways to get into the area that I wanted. And Part of one way was being in Korea or being in Singapore. Um, And I was like, you know what, let me just try it. I didn't have a family. I was, you know, single. And that's how I ended up getting into that field. I networked and met people and found out they were looking for a member in the litigation team at Kim and Chang in international arbitration. I feel like almost everything that I have done has been through referrals. You don't just go to a conference and try to give out as many name cards as you can, mm-hmm. you know, but like just creating the the authentic relationships. I just wanted to know them and be friends with them. They wanted to be friends with me. And then you want to help your friends out. So that's how I've been able to bless other people with my friendships and other people have been able to bless me with their friendships. So my advice is just go out and make friends, make authentic right. you know, friendships. And even if you're nervous about or tired for going for that second round of drinks, just do it because that it's always at the second round where you, you really bond. Yeah. I love that. So you meet your husband in Louisiana and then at what point did you guys start to have a family? Oh gosh. Yeah. So this is another one where sometimes I probably feel shame, un- unnecessary shame for how we started as a family. But first I decided to stay. I felt something very strongly. We weren't even engaged and I was like, I'm going to stay. So I I took that (laughs) chance of saying, (laughs) yeah, that's crazy. You're like, I know. You're like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to not recommend it. You know what you want. I recommend it. (laughs) Yeah. Follow your love. I don't know. Live by your heart. Take risks. So I stayed and then ended up, we were living together. Like I didn't tell my mom that I was living with him, even at that age, which was, how old was I? 37. <laughs> even at that age, I ended up actually getting pregnant first. And I, I was 37. For me, it was like, this is my baby. Whatever happens, man, hopefully this man will love me enough. And he did. So we ended up having a first our civil union, our actual ceremony just with my judge, the judge that I was clerking for at the time in Louisiana, she married Mm. us. And then we had a bigger ceremony a year later after we had the baby and Taya is 
my firstborn, she, she came down the aisle with a Dustin during our wedding ceremony. So yeah, so that's how that all happened. <laughs> and you mentioned you took a four to five year break in your career. I did. Yeah. And what point was that? And how was that decision for you? Yeah, that was, it was easy, but that self doubt that starts to creep in when you take a pause, especially when you're, you were already older for most attorneys, they're going straight from their undergrad, right? Definitely. So I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be behind again, even though I'm already behind. And like, I was dealing with negative thoughts. So it was hard, but I got to see my girls like I knew every word with my firstborn I knew every word that she learned I knew where it came from because that's how much I was with her and it was so worth it even though I am now a step back in my career to some is how they might see it but I don't know three months feels so short and I hate seeing my friends who have to struggle with that and uh, I wish we could do more for our moms. Definitely. Definitely. Especially in our industry, but I don't know how you do it when your time is what is being commoditized. Yeah. What was it like going back to work for you? Did you always know you wanted to go back? I did. Yeah, I did. I knew I needed to do something. It doesn't necessarily have to be a career, but I, I wanted to do something. And that also happened just by complete networking. One of the friends at the firm was like, we're hiring. It's like, oh, you are? Okay. When you went back to work, did you work full time? What was that ramp up like for you? I worked full time and it, it was really difficult because at that point I also had my second and we didn't have any help because we were military and being sent to an area in San Francisco that we had no family really. So I had to ask my mom to like come and live with us and my dad and my parents like bend over backwards for me all the time. And they did that for months to help me. And then we hired a nanny at some point, but that was like, just, it's almost like, what's the point? Because I'm paying like half of a salary or a third of a salary for a nanny. Mm. And so that didn't make sense. So there's a real struggle for sure. And if it hadn't been my mom and dad, I don't know how other people do it with both having crazy hours. That's another part of our system in the US that I feel like oh, that's we're not getting enough voices out there for the moms that need help and the working moms who need that helped you. The podcast called The Whole Lawyer Project. What does being a whole lawyer mean to you personally? Yeah, that's such a good question, right? I wish everybody <laughs> would practice law as a human being, not as like, I'm an attorney and I can only see that goal, which is win-win. Yes, definitely. Right? I don't know why in the law we deny those basic parts of ourselves that are just our natural humanity because somehow we're afraid that is seen as weakness. I don't know why. I, I see that the strongest people that I've ever met in my life are the people who've been the most authentic and the most vulnerable, actually. But somehow we, we're very one-dimensional, like you say. It's like, we're here to win. We don't care about the other side. We're just serving our clients and we're going to win no matter what. And it's funny, but I think you're onto something. Yeah. I don't know why our industry does that. And I don't think that we need to be that way. And I, 
actually I'm starting to feel like the really skilled attorneys don't need to yell and scream and threaten and intimidate. They don't need to do that. If you're actually very skilled and you're good at what you do, you shouldn't need to do that. I'm going to raise it at some point to whenever the right time is to the appropriate people who govern our you know, industry ethics. But I feel like we should be required to learn about being a whole lawyer. I feel like that should be in our law schools and taught as a requirement. And I feel like it should be continued, not just talking about the racial um, justice issues and just having a panel for your firm talking about and creating a committee of diversity, including not just that, but the basics of what good leadership is. I think we really need to learn that because I think most people don't know how to lead and manage well. And the management skill is something that is not taught in our schools and it's not even focused on in our firms like learning about what are the different types of leadership that exists, like what kind of personality, like how do we become better as people and just making you think and question what it means to be a good leader and how do we want to be good leaders and also succeed in our careers. That should be required because we're so busy. We don't put that intention into our lives or our careers the management of our court system, but we should have that skill set because people are leading people. So we need to have that. And it's like, why isn't it there? We need that so that we can become that whole lawyer so that we don't just look at win-win, Bill, make money. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for your time. You're so much fun. It was so good. You're to such be- an inspiration. Seriously. I've been sending my friends your podcast because it's just, man, talk about authenticity and vulnerability and just embracing every part of yourself and loving it. And thank oh. you for what you do and what you put out there. I appreciate you so much. And I really appreciate that so much that you shared it and I thank you for doing this project because it's so important. We need more people like you. Yes. You know? So we'll thank build you. each other up. Thank yes. you so much. <laughs>